chapter 1, verse 5, to chapter 2, verse 2, and can be found on page 1225 of the Church Bible. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not, the, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Emily. Let's pray as we have a look at this text. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have this evening to delve into your word. And Lord, I pray that as we consider it, your Holy Spirit will be working in us, highlighting little bits and pieces of it and ultimately conforming us into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, we are on page 1,225 in 1 John chapter 1, and it would be really helpful to keep that open in front of you if you've closed it. Page 1,225. We've been going through a series on the Creed, and we've got to the point... Uh, where we're speaking about the forgiveness of sins. In the Apostles' Creed, it comes up as, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now, when we start thinking about sins and forgiveness, one of the first things that comes to mind very often is the confession, which we say every Sunday. And people ask, why? Why do we say a confession every Sunday? They say, surely, when we come to Christ, we know that we're forgiven. Both of, both of our past sins and the sins of the future. This is what Christ has done for us on the cross. He's forgiven us uh, for the whole lot. Why do we therefore have to come to him over again and ask for forgiveness in the confession? Or even daily, why do we do that? And I would like to compare uh, this idea of the confession to walking through customs at an airport, which is something that I did yesterday on the way back from Spain. When you get to customs, you've got this choice. You either walk through nothing to declare, or you've got something to declare. And what is it going to be? You've got to make a decision yourself at that point. Now, as many of you all know, I'm from South Africa, and every two years or so, my wife and I love to take our boys down to Cape Town. And we always get to this point at the airport when we're just about to fly back from Cape Town to sunny Cape Town um, to 
to the UK, which maybe is sunny like it is today. Um, but we're about to fly back, and we think we've got a couple of rands in our wallet, and we need to spend them because they're going to be a waste in the UK. The place I love to go to in Cape Town's National Airport is called the Old Cape Farm Stall, and it has the most delicious, tasty biltong, which is South African dried meat, and some absolutely phenomenal dried fruit as well. So I get a bag or two of those bad boys, stuck them in my suitcase, uh, in the hand luggage, and forget about them, because the flight lasts the whole night, and it's morning time by the time we're walking through Heathrow. But we get to that point at Heathrow where we, um, we've got to walk through either nothing to declare or something to declare at customs. And my mind starts going through what's in my suitcase. Nothing serious. Sure, there are no drugs in there. Uh, you know, no firearms, no bombs, no machetes. I think I'm, I'm pretty good at this. My suitcase is pretty empty of uh, anything, anything too bad. And then I remember that sign that I saw on the wall which said items that you can't bring into the EU. And one of them is meat, and another is fruit. Hmm. So now this is a tricky one. What am I going to do here? Well, my mind starts racing already, and I make a decision that actually this is not meat and fruit. This is dried meat and dried fruit. And I'm absolutely sure there's a difference between meat and fruit and dried fruit and dried meat. And then I think about my friends. My friends are always coming back from South Africa with biltong and dried fruit. It's just what people do when they go to South Africa. Those are the things that they come back with. And then I think, I've never known anyone to get caught at customs with biltong or dried fruit in their bags. Have you, do you know anyone who's been caught? No, I'm sure you don't. So I make up my mind, it's all okay. And I walk through nothing to declare. Next time I go, I'm in a supermarket. And in that supermarket, suddenly I see there's tons of biltong there. And it's the good stuff. And there's dried fruit. And again, it's the good stuff. Dried mangoes and that sort of thing, which just costs a fortune here. And it's half the price of even the stuff that you get at the airport in South Africa. So I get a few more of those bags. The following time, maybe, you know, my suitcase is bulging with the stuff that I've brought back into the UK. But by this time, I walk through nothing to declare, feeling like I'm completely justified in doing it. I've got all the arguments in my head. And in fact, by that stage, if a customs officer challenged me, I would feel completely in my right to do what I'm doing. I have got nothing to declare. And if he wants to challenge me, he's in the wrong. I'm right. And this is the basic situation that John is speaking to uh, in this letter. And it's not about dried fruit and dried meat. It's about sin and how we justify it in our lives. It builds up and our justification grows. This is the challenge, this is the um, situation that he's speaking to. And John is speaking to people who, if they were challenged by their sin, challenged about their sin, they would counter the officer, denying everything and saying they're in their right to have the sin that's in their life. In fact, it isn't sin at all. It's absolutely fine. But this is interesting because we encounter a situation that every Christian finds him or herself in. And it's the awkward one that we continue sinning after we have given our lives to Christ. As Christians, we go through this point where 
we repent of our sins, turn away from them, and turn to Christ. In a sinner's prayer, we confess our sins and say that we want to live for him and him alone, Jesus alone. But yet as we go through our life, we find there's stuff there that's ugly, that we don't like. What are we going to do about this sin that stays in our life? What should we do about it? Well, we've got three options. Here's the first one. The first one is to decide that actually Jesus doesn't have the power over our sin. And John's writing in a context where some people might make this argument, and he responds to it by saying this in verse 5. He says, this is the message we have heard from him, that's Jesus, and declare to you, God is light. In him, that's in God, there is no darkness at all. Now, if there's no darkness in God, there's no evil, there's nothing hidden in God. If there's no sin in God, it means that he does have the power over sin. And while we're talking about darkness and light, what does it make you think of? John, darkness and light? John 1. Makes you think of John 1. And this is what John writes in his gospel. He writes, John 1 verse 5, he writes, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's speaking about Jesus coming into the world, the light into a dark world, and the darkness, the evil, cannot overcome Jesus. Jesus has the power over sin. So that's the first option if we find we've got sin in our life. There's a second option. If we've got sin in our life, we can rationalize it like the people did um, who John is writing to And we can explain it away. But John is tackling their arguments. And he says, therefore, and I carry on into verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, that's with God, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. If you are friends with a God who is light, and you're hiding things in the dark, then there's a problem with your friendship. Carry on to verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, this is what they're doing. This is what I might do with the customs officer. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. There's deceit, lying in ourselves. And deceit, lying, is not found in God. We deceive ourselves, and the truth, therefore, is not in us. God is truth. Verse 10. If we claim to not have sinned, And that's a continuation, continue to sin. We make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. John is writing to men and women in the church who call themselves Christians, who are Christians. But just like I might want to make that customs officer out to be a liar if he challenges me, these guys want to make God out to be a liar when they're challenged about their sin. We can't do that. There's a third option there when we find sin in our life. And it's that we confess our sins and receive his forgiveness. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But hang on. There are some sins that you don't just confess once. You seem to be continuing to confess them over and over again, and they just don't go away. 
You see, in my mind, I think there are three different categories of sin or types of sin that we find in our lives. There's the type that seems to just disappear completely when you say that sin is prayer. You repent of your past life and you turn to Christ. And overnight, they just seem to lose their power. Maybe it was taking God's name in vain, blaspheming. Maybe it was swearing. I don't know. I don't know what it was for you. But some of those things just seem to disappear when we give our lives to the Lord. That's the first one. There's a second category of sins that seem to decrease slowly. And they decrease slowly as we spend time in God's word, lapping up his truth. As we spend time in prayer, talking to God and listening to him. As we spend time in fellowship with other Christians in church and in home groups, as we're challenged by them, as we're encouraged by them. And throughout all these things, the Holy Spirit is at work in us, producing fruit in our lives, fruit that pushes out the bad stuff. And we read some of the the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, which you might know. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As the fruit of the Spirit emerges in our life, it seems to drive out the bad stuff. And there's some sin that just decreases its hold on us. One of the things that I struggled with uh, before becoming a Christian was anger. And slowly through my life, it seems to have decreased its hold. Uh, You'll be surprised, I hope, to know that. In my final year at school, I don't think I've told you this before, in my final year at school, I was called Little Hitler, um, just because I would, I would, I would just have these outbursts of of rage against the younger boys in in the house, in particular, in the house that I was day boy house I was in. And I think as I've spent more time with God, this anger has decreased more and more. It's not finished. It's not gone completely. But no one's called me Little Hitler for a while, which I take to be a good sign. That's the second category, those that decrease their grip slowly. Uh, There's a third category of sin, and this is the one that we struggle with. The ones that just refuse to go away and they continue to rear their ugly heads at awkward times in particular. These are the sins that are tied up so tightly with our character and our personality, with our upbringing, with our family, with our parents and our siblings. They're identity sins. And every time we bash them down, they just seem to come back up again. And we get so frustrated with them. I'd like to compare these sins with a tree that you find in a house that you've just bought. It's a wild tree, and it's seeded itself in the garden, and it's ugly. And you want to improve the look of that garden, and so you decide to chop down the tree. So you walk into the garden with your axe to do damage to the tree. And you go for it. You whack at that tree until it falls. And you chop up the branches and you stick that tree, branches and all, into a fire and you burn it. And you think, that's it. I've sorted out that ugly wild tree that was growing in my garden and shouldn't be there. A couple of weeks later, you return to the garden you find that tree has sprouted. And you think, okay, I'll sort it out again. 
this is going to be the final time. So you take your saw and you cut it all the way down to the stump, down to the ground. You cut crisscrosses in it and you pour in some tree killer and you say, yes, sorted that tree out. A few weeks later, you return to your garden and sprouting again. So you come out with your drill that you just bought from B&Q, nice big drill bit, and you drill holes into that stump and pour in more weed, more tree killer so it can get right into the veins of the tree. But a few weeks later, it's sprouting yet again. So you come at it and you think, I know what I'm going to do. You have a spade and you dig around the tree. You take your axe again and you whack at those roots until the whole stump comes out of the ground. You burn that stump and you say, that is the end of that tree. And you return again and you find that they're little saplings growing from the roots that stretch for meters all around your garden. And at this time, you're losing heart because you've put a lot of effort into taking down that tree. And it just seems to be growing back whatever you do. And it might be that you've got to spend the rest of your life doing battle with that tree and you'll never have complete victory. That is suddenly a possibility. What are you going to do in that time when you lose heart? Well, the first thing that I want to say from this uh, passage from John is that we can't give up. John writes this in chapter 2, verse 1. I write this to you so that you will not sin. I write this to you so that you will not sin. We can't just forget about the sin and walk away and let those little saplings grow into big trees. It's not an option. You can't do that. He says this later in chapter 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin or persist in sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning. They cannot persist in sin because they have been born of God. He doesn't give us an option of letting those saplings grow into big trees. But you say, I feel so alone in this. I just feel like I'm whacking at this tree and I'm so alone and I need some support. What encouragement can you give me, John? Let me give you three encouragements. And the first one is a continuation of that verse. But if anyone does sin, and here's an acknowledgement that we will continue to sin, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ sits on the right hand of the Father, and he sits there to intercede for us, to argue our case for us. And he doesn't do it on his, he doesn't do it on our merits. The son isn't looking to the father and saying, Father, look at Guy's life. You know, you have to let him go. He's not saying that. He's not doing it on our merits. Because Karen reading. We have an advocate of the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not, but for our, not just for us, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is the atoning sacrifice. The Son is sitting next to the Father, 
an advocate on our behalf. And he's not saying to the father, look at Guy's life. He's saying to the father, look at my life. I died for that one. I died for that one. And what does this tell us about him? Well, chapter 4, verse 10 tells us, um, John says, this is love. This is love in action that we're seeing. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Which is love for you. Love for me that took Christ to the cross for us. That he died for us as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So that's the first encouragement. Here's the second encouragement. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1. John refers to his readers as my dear children. John has a relationship with these people he's writing to. And it's a relationship of love. He loves them and he wants the best for them. And I think John picked up this heart for his people from what he saw in Christ. And I even wonder... If when, he's talk, when he calls them his dear children, when he's, whether he's thinking back to Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. The story of love where the son says to the father, Dad, I just want what's owed to me and I'm going to get out of here. Basically, Dad, I wish you were dead and I could do what I want to do. And the father hands him the cash and the son walks away. And very soon the son is involved in wild living. And he spent it all. He's financially bankrupt. And he's also spiritually bankrupt. And he finds himself in a farm working with pigs. And he wants to eat those pods that the pigs are eating. And he thinks back to his father's estate and his father's servants. And he thinks, those guys have it better than I have it. Why don't I just go back and be a servant, work for my dad as a hired hand. So he heads out there, and he's got this speech in his head. He's going to say, Dad, I want to work for you. And he's still a long way off when his father spots him, and he's been waiting for him. And the son can't even get there before the father gets to him, and he wraps his arms around him. And the son starts his speech, but the father won't have it. And the father won't have it because the father can't take the son back as a hired hand. He's his son. So he wraps his arm around him and stick, says, stick the ring on his finger that says, this guy's my son. The sandals on, the, on his feet, the robe on his back. Let's kill that fattened calf and have a party because my son was dead and now he's alive. That's an incredible image of love. How we see that. God is for us, and we are in Christ. But I bet that story wouldn't have ended there for that son. I bet there were times when that son thought, I know my dad accepted me as a son and wouldn't hear the end of my speech about being a hired hand. But I want to be the best hired hand that I can possibly be. I want to show my dad that he made a good decision in choosing me. I'm going to work harder than any of his servants. I'm going to 
pay my dad back for what he did. If we do that with God, it's called legalism, and it's a sin, because it belittles God's grace and mercy. Jesus paid it all for us. He didn't pay some, or he didn't pay it all so that we could pay back some. Jesus paid it all for us. And the only response is to receive it as a gift. Receive God's grace. Receive our salvation as a gift. I reckon there are some other times, too, when that son wanted to to jump out the bedroom window, dart out into the darkness, and head down to that brothel and have some more wild living. Thinking that his dad would forgive him when he walked back again. So easy to be forgiven once. Why can't he be forgiven twice? But yet again, that's to belittle God's grace. That's to belittle the cost that is paid by Christ on the cross. So don't give in to legalism. Don't give in to license. Live in light of the Father's incredible gift that he's given you in his Son. Here's a third encouragement, and it's from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Paul says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We are to continue to work out our salvation. We continue to work at it. Continue to work at that tree, chopping it down, digging the roots, taking out the saplings. And it feels like work, and it is work. But God is in us and behind all the work that we do in order to act and fulfill his good purpose. Jonathan Edwards wrote of this passage, We are not merely passive, nor does God do some and we do the rest, but God does all and we do all. God produces all and we act all. God is the only proper author and fountain. We are the proper actors. We are, in different respects, wholly passive and wholly active. And brothers and sisters, that's not in sanctification, something that's added on to our salvation. This is in salvation. Paul's saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's what's at stake. It's serious stuff. So that's the third encouragement. But if you're saying to me, Guy, what should I do practically? Give me some tips. I'm going to give you four. Here's the first one. Ask God for forgiveness for your sins. Don't keep them bottled up. Say, Lord, this is the thing that I'm struggling with. I need your help with it. Please forgive me. And when we ask for God's forgiveness, his power is at work in us. Our sin loses its power. Second step, prayerfully decide what needs to change in your life. I was chatting to a friend a couple of weeks ago who suffered with an alcohol addiction. And I said to him, mate, you've been sober for many years now. Why can't you just have one beer? It tastes good. Or one glass of wine. How about that? And he said to me, Guy, I probably could. 
I probably could. But the problem is, when I have one beer or one glass of wine on a Friday night, I never know whether I'm going to get home that night or whether I'm going to still be there on Monday morning in that bar. I can't tell you. So for me, it's much better to not have that first one. And I want to say the same about sin in our life. When we're radical about digging up those trees in our garden, about removing sin in our life, work out what is that one drink, what's the first step, and don't do that first step. And then you'll know that you won't be in the bar on Monday morning or whatever the equivalent is. Prayerfully decide what needs to change. Here's the third one. Ask someone to keep you accountable. When you share this thing that you're struggling with with someone else, it breaks the power even further. It's completely in the light now. Other people know about it. It's no longer your dirty, dark secret. And they can challenge you. They can come back to you and say, how's that thing going? Ask them to do that. Tell them how often you should, they should ask you the question. And then suddenly you're kept accountable because you know you're not going to do that thing or you're less likely to do that thing if you've got to tell someone else about it. Tell someone else. And here's the fourth one. Take time to get to know your sins. What sins are you struggling with in your life? Can you name them in your head? Do you know your sins? Have you come to terms with them? Have you got a little mental list? Take time to get to know your sins so that you can work out how to battle them. The pastor, John Piper, in the States, who's a busy man, ran a church, wrote books, off on conferences all the time, the kind of guy who doesn't have time to focus on his sins and sort them out, writes this. I took an eight-month leave of absence from my pastoral duties. No preaching, no book writing, no blogging, no tweeting, no church responsibilities. I called it a soul check, and with the help of my wife and a counselor, I did more soul-searching than I can remember ever doing before. I wanted to know my most intransigent sins. I wanted to make war on them in fresh ways. If this busy pastor can take the time to get to know his sins and make war on them, so can you, and so can I, and so should we all. Let's pray. Father, we find it so easy to lie to ourselves when it comes to the stuff in our lives that's ugly and dark and hidden away and not of you and shouldn't be there. Lord, we find it easy to justify ourselves saying, maybe you don't have power over those sins. or Maybe they aren't sins at all. But I pray, Lord, for us, Lord, that you would bring them to light. You would show us what they are. You would help us to make war on them. 
you would encourage us that you are with us. You are at work with us by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't give up, but we'd continue in the fight. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to get practical in them, take them seriously, and take the time to make war on them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.